0: How do we keep America competitive in the world? And how do we make that competitiveness benefit people in all parts of our country? This is Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL Radio podcast wherever you find your podcasts and available on YouTube on the Blue Amp channel. So look for us and subscribe there. If there's a common thread in the Biden presidency in the Democratic Congress of the past two years, it's trying to make America more competitive. A bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, investing in roads, bridges and broadband, the Semiconductor Manufacturing Bill, investing in innovative industries and our edge in computing, the Inflation Reduction Act, investing in advanced energy production. But of course, when we talk about technology and, and innovation, a lot of people just think of tech bros getting rich in a high rise in San Francisco. So. The question is, is all of this innovation actually good? Is technology good for everyone? Was Andrew Yang right that robots are coming to take our jobs? Well, there's no one better to address these questions than former U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp. She was the first female senator elected from North Dakota, served on the Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship, and serves on the board of the American Edge Project, an advocacy group focused on the role of America, American technology and innovation. Senator, welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Thank you so much, Paul, for having me.
0: So tell, tell us and our listeners, what is American Edge? And why did you want to be part of it after leaving
1: the US Senate? Well, American Edge is what we frequently call a C4, which is an advocacy group. We don't lobby. But we basically try and advance a discussion in the American public regarding American competitiveness, especially in the tech sector. I think there's a lot of when I was there, there were a lot of senators who didn't even know how to send an email. Right. And and so you're you're in this spot where people who are stepping into this space, regulation whether it's regulation, whether it is opining about what the tech industry should do, who really don't have a serious background in tech. And so we think it's very important that we expand the dialogue and the discussion, not just in the Beltway, but across the country about how technology has really enabled American entrepreneurship, how it has enabled an incredible growth in America's economy with the advent of the new information age, and then what the threats are to that American dominance and why that's important, not only from an economic standpoint, but why it's important from a national security standpoint. And really from the standpoint of my particular interest is on American values. You take a look at now what's happening. Larry Hogan was the last governor who recently announced that he does not want TikTok on any devices that are owned by the state of Maryland. We had the governor of South Dakota doing the same thing. We're starting to recognize that technology that's being developed or at least embedded in devices in our country represents not only a national security threat, but a threat against people's privacy. And the People's Republic of China is not all that interested in protecting the privacy of the average American citizen. But yet we take that on in the tech industry as a major source of responsibility. And so I just believe that the next generation of anything that we do is going to have embedded tech. It should be American tech, but we cannot hamstring the development of American technologies.
2: Just to make sure we're all following what we're talking about here, when you talk about tech innovation. I think what what I tend to hear, what many people tend to hear is social media platforms or crypto, but I don't think you just mean that. Could you tell us a bit of what you're including in terms of what technologies, what kinds of innovation, and crucially, what is it doing for the American economy and Americans' well-being and our national security?
1: Well, the first thing I'd ask everybody is how many of you have Zoom cameras or have a camera, a ring camera on your doorbell? How many of you have a have a thermostat in your house where you can adjust it when you're someplace else? How many of you are controlling your lights from a distance? And the more people get comfortable with this technology, as the more millennials age into, let's admit it, middle age, the more we're going to see these embedded technologies in everything that we do. The Congress went a long way in adopting the CHIPS Act. I think that was a brilliant piece of legislation, very bipartisan, wouldn't have happened without people like. Todd Young from Indiana, basically saying, look, who manufactures chips is important, not just from the standpoint of not being beholden to those imports, but what do we know about what's being embedded? And we've talked a lot about Yahweh and and 5G and what that looks like going forward. We just need to understand that this technology that we've come to rely on has functionally been developed by American companies with American values, that's not true anymore. and we need to have that discussion. But we also at the same time that we're having that discussion about how do we make sure that the technology that is going into Americans homes is safe for, for the American people and safe for our economy, safe for our power grid, whatever it might be. but 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 equally important, how do we how do we make sure that American values are reflected? In, in the in the technology that we use, but that we also are moving forward from the standpoint of developing the American economy in that next generation. Paul, when he first introduced this, was talking about next tech jobs. And Senator Warner has been absolutely, I think, strategic in how he looks at the future of work. That's a dialogue that was started probably 10 years ago about what, what kind of skills do we need? What does the future of work look like? None of us want to go back to when we used to take knives and cut out shoe leather, right? That's all done on, but through automation. That is the next generation, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in advanced manufacturing, whether it, and technology is going to be ubiquitous across our economy. And we need to understand what the threats are when we do that, but also what the opportunities are. Senator,
0: you and I both represented a rural state. And the pushback that you get is when we use the word innovation, what many people hear is either big tech that makes California rich, but doesn't do a lot for people in North Dakota or computers and robots are taking rust built manufacturing jobs. Why should people in North Dakota or Ohio or Appalachia or New Hampshire care about tech and innovation? Why should they see it as something good?
1: Because that's where the growth is because that is what, I mean, you could say, well, why why care about the steam engine? Right? The steam engine changed the American economy. Mass production developed by, by Henry Ford changed the way we manufacture goods. Now, you could argue about whether those were good things, but we are always going to see a progression of how we manufacture things, how we address goods and services in this economy. And that's going to be strategically developed with Uh, technology. And that technology is something that I really fault the the angel investors because they only look at, I think, 90% of all angel investment is in California, Washington, and Massachusetts. Guess what? We have incredibly innovative, talented people look to bringing capital to places, states like ours. In the You're in proximity of Boston, so you probably get some of that glory reflected into New Hampshire. But for North Dakota... We, when you look at advanced agriculture and what's going to happen in terms of reducing costs of input by, by understanding soil science better and then programming your equipment to understand that, whether it is operator tractors that, that operate without a participant in the tractor, this is the wave of the future. And we cannot stop that innovation because we're afraid of of what people would call job loss. We've got to figure out what that next generation of jobs is and how we train for the next generation of jobs.
2: Well, first of all, Senator, you've given me a wonderful idea for a new motto for New Hampshire. It might be, yes, Massachusetts, we'll take your scraps. Going back to the list. <laughs> I of,
1: did not mean that. Well,
0: no, 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 no. I, that's uh, a pretty dirty, old-fashioned approach to innovation. Yeah, d- dirty little <laughs>
1: secret.
0: Dirty little
2: secret. I think our listeners know this. I actually moved to Massachusetts. And so now I have split loyalties. I know, it's terrible. I, uh, I'm i embarrassed. I uh, Well, that's okay. In our last show, I went on a huge rant against New Hampshire. So I, I've been kicked out of the state anyway. A- at the top of the show, Paul threw out... A list of some of the big bills, just a sampling from the last year that are really huge from a competitiveness standpoint, Inflation Reduction Act, Semiconductor Bill, and of course, infrastructure, which speaks to our own internal logistics, ability to get our goods to market, etc. Are those the big highlights for you and for American Edge? Or if not, what did we miss?
1: I think I think that there's the the kind of positive things that speak to a growing Americans innovation and and technology and having people understand the role that technology is going to play in our economic future and and really in their personal future. But it also is we need to modernize our antitrust laws. They were designed for 20s circumstances where people controlled one industry and, and created barriers to access for other companies, introduced who, who wanted to be competitors. We need to take a look at competition, but we need, need to also understand when you look at that competition, that competition goes beyond this country. It goes internationally. America's technology firms are not necessarily thinking about the competition within American companies. They're thinking, what does TikTok mean? If you're, if you Facebook or if you're Instagram or if you're Snapchat, what does TikTok mean for you? And, and those are social media platforms and that's not all we're talking about. And so what we're, what we're suggesting is that as we move forward with modernizing American regulatory systems, as we move forward, taking a look at where the glitches are right now in terms of barriers to competition, how do we make sure that we do no harm? That that this is al- actually value added to customers. That's value added to to the people of New Hampshire, the people of North Dakota. One of the things that that I always remind people when I you know, we were early adapters in my house. We had that old uh, Apple computer that cost probably two thousand dollars, which was big money in nineteen eighty, right? Uh, my husband was medical students, and so we were able to get the education discount. But I remind everybody, we paid, I think at the time20 dollars a month to dial in to AOL. Today, we would never think about paying for our our, our our email system. Well, guess guess why that you don't have to pay for that because it's being paid by somebody else. It's like free television. Eventually the price of free television is you got to occasionally watch a couple ads, right? And so when you look at how the technology industry has really enhanced our life, but also had the cost of actually providing access to this information and to this, these platforms has, has basically been eliminated. Now, that cost, if I were arguing the other side of this, I'd say, sure, there's going to be cost. The cost is your information is going to be shared. There may be your location. Google just paid a huge fine because they were inappropriately sharing location information. In that case, the system worked when you look at the system of regulation. But, But overall, what I would say is we don't have a regulatory scheme that has kept up with the times. But when we're designing a modification We need to be extraordinarily cautious and really think about the law of unintended consequences, especially as it relates to international competition and international values.
2: Could I follow up on that for a second? And I'm going to ask you to spill the tea and speak out of school about your private conversations with your former colleagues in the Senate. Don't worry. It's just the three of us and all the thousands (laughs) of people watching on this modern video platform and et cetera. You raise a really interesting point about competitiveness and antitrust. Because in the old school world of regulation, boy, am I going into the weeds here. When you look at, does this company have too much market power? There are two regulatory questions that the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice looks at. What's the relevant geographic market? And what's the relevant product market? Well, nowadays, you brought up some examples. Those questions are super difficult. It's not even relevant anymore to ask what's the relevant Geographic market and product, who knows? It's constantly morphing. If you're in competition, you know, and you're TikTok, what are you up against? Are you up against all television? Are you up against short form video ads? Are you up against flash mobs? I don't even know. So when you talk to your former colleagues in the Senate, and as you say, many of them still struggle with the hey, could my aide print out my email for me? Do they do they have any thoughts about how to grapple with all of this, especially as like crypto is melting down? Like, is is there a consensus emerging about how you regulate this new frontier?
1: No, I don't. I don't think there is. I think there's a lot of questions, and and to me. That the most important thing you can do is ask a lot of questions. Don't assume. Don't assume that you've got all the answers to begin with. Think very strategically, and and I, I think there's a problem with with folks too often they get pride of authorship. I have a daughter, full disclosure, works in the tech industry. And she said, that's interesting because I have to explain political world to my colleagues because they say, well, here they, they said this, but we gave them all this information and they didn't change their mind. And her point was, it's very hard once somebody says something in the political world to get them to change their mind. Because in the tech world, when, when you say, okay, we, we need to do this, and then someone says, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, it's not going to work with this. People go, oh, okay, let's figure out a workaround or let's, you know, here's the goal. And so I think that the question is that it it always, it I, I always tell people, there's two questions I always ask. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? You know, what 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 in a perfect world would look the way you think it should look? What are you trying to accomplish? And then what's the theory of your case that that's a good thing? And so I think that that there's a lot of uh, my colleagues that I talk to, and and God knows I love many of the people who have been advancing this dialogue because I think it's an important dialogue to advance. But by the same token, I also think that they need to be less defensive and more responsive to people who say, what about this? the what about. Here, I, I'll give you this scenario, what about it? And when the answer is just trust us, that's not an answer that's going to work very well for a lot of members.
0: I, your your comments and, and Matt's kind of ironic or sarcastic comments about the ability of members of Congress to uh, handle tech remind me that when I went to Congress in 2007, we were using Blackberries, iPads hadn't Quite been brought to market, and when iPads did come in, they weren't allowed on the floor of the House of Representatives. And everybody, all of a sudden, we've gone through this decade-long revolution in smartphones and technology that really has been seen exponential, really exponential progress. And will, will you? I can use that word in technological innovation. So. What I what I want to ask about is, in the regulatory framework that we're dealing with, we face extraordinary new challenges. We have a First Amendment that protects free speech. We have what has become a huge, ubiquitous platform, Twitter, owned by a private individual. In recent weeks since the purchase has been completed, we've seen a And a huge rise in hate speech, which arguably is not protected by the First Amendment, depending on how hateful it is. So there are no bright lines to be drawn here. And calls for regulation for Congress to do something are are rising. And Congress has been, frankly, dealing with the questions of how do we regulate these brand new technologically innovative platforms that have now become ubiquitous ubiquitous in the world and as a means of communication. What are you seeing? What are you hearing from your former colleagues? And, and where does American Edge come down on the question of regulating the social media giants?
1: The first thing I want to say is, let's say that this is going to be market-driven, right? And right now you see a number of large advertisers who are leaving the Twitter platform, whether they come back, I think is another question. But they're basically saying we're not going to endorse that. In some cases, they're competitors of, of Elon Musk, who is also, that's not his only business. Let's just take the argument that the free market can regulate content. People don't like what they see. It. Does, it. Let's assume for a moment that it has not crossed the line. It hasn't become dangerous speech. It hasn't become the kind of speech that threatens individuals or re- results in, I think, revenge porn, the kinds of things that, that you could argue are not embodied in free speech. Number one, a, a, a privately held platform is under no obligation under the First Amendment. When you think about this, I always tell people when they say, well, but I can't post what I want on Facebook. I can't post what I want on, on Twitter. I say, and if you wrote a letter to the editor, you couldn't force the paper to publish it. The reality is beyond that, these platforms have re- really become the marketplace of ideas. That's where most people get their news now. That's how they communicate with each other. It has led to siloing of political thought because people will only follow people they like or follow people they don't agree with. That that's all part of, I think, people's right. But but when you look at a corporation refusing to advertise, and then you've got people on the right saying that's woke capitalism and and uh, they're violating free speech. It it was the you know what what do you, what is Apple have against against the First Amendment? Well, really nothing, and, and nothing that Apple's done involves the First Amendment. But let's let's for a moment then say that these platforms have taken on a larger-than-life role. They're not just your local paper that that you couldn't get a letter to the editor in and you're not going to control content. That they are very significant. I think it's really, really, not dangerous, but problematic to find the line on where you regulate content. I'll tell you, that I probably was at the center of probably the biggest regulation of content that has happened in the last 20 years when we did an amendment to the Communication Decency Act to make sure that that Backpage.com was not advertising children. right? So I got criticized for that by the sex workers saying, you've made it less less safe for us because now now this platform won't let us advertise escort services and i said i didn't tell them they couldn't you couldn't advertise escort services i told them they can't advertise children and and so a lot of times then the reaction is look we're not going to do any of this and then people say but the content is is so it it's my voice and how do i get my voice out In a place where people are listening and and these are really tough questions but i think that as we look at regulating content having a discussion about content one person's cancel culture is another person's right right Mm -hmm. so when people say well this is this is all part of the cancel culture mentality i want to say i remember when kaepernick took a knee And Nike made them the spokesperson and all you people wanted to boycott Nike. I don't think that's cancel culture. I think that's exercising your First Amendment right through your pocketbook to say, I don't like what this corporation is doing. And so I think we need to be really, really careful and examine things like what, especially Senator Cruz is advancing, that they want to, they really want to. I think, control those platforms, but not for the betterment of everybody, just the betterment of their political position. And so if you you had one thing to say good about the tech industry, at least before this dialogue with Twitter, is they were really trying to figure out where those boundaries were and how they were not going to be part of a, a movement that disseminated disinformation, that destabilized our economy, destabilized our democracy, but that they would let free speech reign. And these are tough, tough questions.
2: Let's talk Congress for just a second. As we record this, it's December 2022, and we're on the cusp of having a new Congress and a split of power in the U.S. Congress. I just had Ryan McConaughey on the show. You you might remember him, Senator. He used to work for the Democratic Caucus for Senator Schumer on policy. I love Ryan. Ryan. Well, I do too. He's an awesome guy. And he had an uplifting message, which he's is he's really smart. By the yeah, way. He is really smart. Well, I always feel I always feel a little smarter after talking to him because I just <laughs> learned something. And then I reflect on my lack of intelligence. And I, I feel bad about myself. But he made me feel good for a little while because he said there are some areas where he could see gang um in the Senate, like a good kind of gang, work together and maybe prevail on a Republican majority house to get some things done. And most of those things he thought more or less came down to competitiveness and some of these issues we're talking about today. What do you see on the horizon as far as the issues that you're focusing on around tech and innovation? Do you think this is going to be a fertile time for some legislative progress?
1: I think one of the great challenges in in the American economy is workforce. Mm. Whether it is workforce in construction or whether it's workforce in the tech industry. It's connecting our people, training our people, giving our people the kinds of economic opportunities to earn a great living and be part of a growing and hopefully robust middle class. And and so I I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about what we call workforce participation rates, because I would say as somebody who studied the economies of our states for a long time the more people you have working the greater your state gross domestic product that's true nationally and when you have fewer people working that means less productivity in this country and and how people make up for that less productivity is they they lean more heavily on technology on innovation on automation we get more efficient america is an incredibly efficient Place And people don't, I don't think people really appreciate it. But when you look at what's on the horizon in the future for Congress, I think it's completely dependent on what happens in the House. In the good news on the House, you've got to your neighbor to the east, New York, New York basically functionally delivered the, the House majority with moderates right so everybody's talking about marjorie taylor green and and who those people the influence they would have i think it's more important that you look at what's the influence of the moderates the people in the middle who probably who won in biden plus 4 or plus 5 or plus 10 districts who know that that in order for them to be successful in their reelect that they are going to have to come back with some bipartisan solutions and so i, I the one area that i think Needs to be addressed as immigration reform and border security. And don't like talking about border security. Republicans don't like talking about immigration reform. We did a bill that got almost 70 senators' vote. Had we done that, we would be further along on both of those issues, both border security and, and that's also part of that workforce participation. What
0: you've just talked about raises a question for me. So in 2021, we had the greatest single year of job creation in American history and more than 6 million jobs in 2021, a decrease of 16 million people receiving unemployment benefits, the biggest drop in the unemployment rate in history. We have the biggest yearly increase in U.S. manufacturing jobs in nearly 30 years. But in at least according to polls, The the voters said they trusted Republicans on the economy. And in the 2022 campaign, the Democrats, despite our 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 success last night in electing Raphael Warnock to the Senate, Democrats didn't talk about jobs or the economy or manufacturing hardly at all. Do we do Democrats need a new way to talk about jobs and the economy and how to make people successful that 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 helps turn that tide in in the way that folks think about Democrats in the economy? Is there some, what are we missing? And is there some new way we should be speaking about
1: it? What we're missing is this. My good friend, Barbara Mikulski, who I adore, her when I first came to the Senate, for some reason she adopted me, and and she had an expression that I use all the time. She said, "Yes, we have to talk about the macro issues: what's our unemployment rate, what's our GDP, what's our workforce participation, all of the things that are that we see as historic measures of a successful economy." She goes, "But we win when we talk about the macaroni and cheese issues, and no one wants to hear a bunch of statistics. What they want to hear is a story." They want to hear a story about a small town in Ohio who really didn't have, who, who, who lost manufacturing during the, the, the big movement after NAFTA, who, who saw globalization threaten them, who now are going to be manufacturing microchips. And, and where we miss it is not in the policy. We miss in telling the story of what we're doing, not, not boring you to death with a bunch of statistics. Right, and 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 so I used to used to call it the blah 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 of politics. The minute you start saying, "Well, I want to talk about my <laughs> six million jobs," and, and pretty soon people are going blah 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 blah. And I want that. I think I think it has a greater impact to say, I "Want to talk about mobile Alabama and that the opportunity that's being presented to Betty who really was struggling, only working at retail, and now she's got a job that pays her $24 an hour with the opportunity for advancement. I want to talk about how that happened for Betty. And, and, and so, and I'm just making that up, but you get my point. My point is we are not good storytellers, and, and we we always want to lead, and, and this is not maybe fair, but we always want to lead with, with inspiration. And fear will trump inspiration every time if you let it. And so I think we need to be inspiring and we need to push back when people are fear mongering a lot of these ideas.
2: All right, Senator, now we get to the really hard hitting questions that we don't expect you to be able to answer, but you are a highly skilled politician. So we expect that at the very least you'll have an artful way of dealing with them. Do you support President Joe Biden, in his suggested move to take New Hampshire's status as the leader with the New Hampshire primary away from them. No,
1: (laughs) in part because you have two great senators. And I think there was a way for people to share the date. Not necessarily. I I, I like what they're doing to not let, you know, one or two states kind of determine who is the pool of applicants. But I think I obviously come from a small state. I obviously love your senators. As you just spent the morning with Maggie, she did a brilliant job at the prayer breakfast. Absolutely moved people to tears and just so eloquent. And, and so I'm going to stand with Jeannie and, and with Maggie and say, I, I think that this decision should be reconsidered. I think we should respect New Hampshire's law. I'm not, I I, I think New Hampshire just returned a Democratic senator To the United States Senate, I think it is, in fact, a purple state. When you look at Iowa, Iowa is completely red now. There's only one statewide elected official in Iowa who is a Democrat. Is that the right place for people to decide who should be the nominee? I think there's a real legitimate argument that no, it's not. But New Hampshire, I think, has a different argument.
2: And so I'm going with New Hampshire. Oh, you know what, Senator? I wow, I'm I'm doing cartwheels mentally here because I wrote an article about this that everyone hated who's a Democrat, except for me. I loved it where I made this argument. I said, look, I moved to Massachusetts. I'm sorry when it comes to nominating who's going to be our standard bearer from the party. I don't want Massachusetts to have more of a voice than the good people of Arizona because ultimately our candidate has to win in Arizona to become president. So I'm sorry. I want to listen to them. And I think New Hampshire has a relatively good case. I think the good people of Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, they all have a strong case. I'm sorry, Massachusetts. I'm sorry, New York. I was born in New York. I think that our role in the process should be diminished. So I, I, I just thought I heard a vote for my platform there.
1: Yeah, and and I think what what do you think would be do you think it would be smart for the Republicans to go to California and say who should be our nominee? Well, I mean, hopefully you know, not so, because
2: they might end up with Kevin McCarthy.
1: But but I, I think my point is who's going to reflect a a dialogue and a and a demographic where it's very it's not homogenous, but it it's bringing people together who who represent different kinds of belief systems and attitudes but they are they are these states are in play and they are possible for for the democratic party should we should we go to alabama not yet i think alabama could potentially be georgia given the the demographic leanings do you think we should go to wyoming and let wyoming pick the democratic candidate no, so or or North Dakota. I, I Heidi
2: Heitkamp for president. I am so thrilled with everything you're saying right now. Please, Democrats, listen to this fine American leader. I, I thank you,
0: thank you, Senator. You've now become the GOAT uh, of Beyond Politics. You are the greatest of all time guests for for defending the primacy of the New Hampshire primary. We do it like nobody else does it. We are the Nay plus ultra of democratic politics. And we we need to be out front.
1: I actually have a question that maybe you guys can answer because I've been thinking about this. New Hampshire is going to go ahead because you have a state law that says you're going to be wrong. Oh, right, right. And so if you go ahead, does that mean the Democratic Party is not going to seat your delegates? Really? That's
0: that's likely one of the sanctions that they are I mean, going is
1: to mean, Is that really what's going to happen here? I understand South Carolina. This is a state that was responsible for Joe Biden's comeback sure. and, and created a springboard for him to become the nominee. I think South Carolina has interesting demographics, honestly, and not to criticize the president. If I were going to pick one of those Carolinas, it would have been North. We right. have a lot better. Barack Obama won North Carolina.
2: I'm in favor of Paul Hodes as a delegate to the next convention being bounced at the door. I think that you should be turned away by a burly bouncer named Vito and told, I'm sorry, Congressman, there's no room for you at the end.
1: <laughs> well, I know that I, I know that this is it's tough, tough politics. But I want to as a, as a member, a card carrying member of the Democratic Party, I want people in New Hampshire to know that I believe that they should still take the honor.
2: Let me let me hit you with one more since we're since we're having like a fun run here at the end of the show. What's your favorite memory from your time in the Senate so far? Maybe you'll be back. But what what stands out to you?
1: Oh, there's there's quite a few. I I usually tell the story of the first time I presided in the Senate. Mm. And it's probably the most any kind of aha time. So I I got elected when no one thought I could get elected, right? So I'm from a deep red coming, I only won by 3000 votes. And it was no one thought I was going to win. And so here I am a United States Senator. And I, I always tell people, yeah, you know, like, there's a lot to do before you take office, you got to get a staff, you got to get an office, you got to get stationary, you got it, you, know, you got to show up and get things arranged. And so it's just like coming at you fast and furious. You don't really have time to think about what this is. And so as a junior member of the United States Senate majority, you preside a lot, which means you go and sit behind that big desk. And it may look like that's really important. It's pretty ministerial, right? You have people in front of you tell you what to do. But this is the first time that I presided. And and I was was gaveled in the, the Senate. The pastor came up and gave a prayer. And then you as the presiding officer turn and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And I turned nervous thinking, oh, this is such a moment that I don't want to forget the words. And I put my hand on my heart and I said the Pledge of Allegiance, but started crying. Because I thought about the fact that I'm a kid from North Dakota, small town, 90 people. My dad was a, 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 basically a truck driver, but a construction worker. And my mom was a school cook. And there were seven of us and we didn't have a lot but we had opportunity because of this great country. And I thought, anyone tries to tell you that this country isn't one of the most remarkable places and in the history of the world, giving opportunity to someone like me, it just made me so proud of my country, but so grateful. For what I had been given. So that's probably my most endearing moment is <laughs> I'm gonna get weepy even talking about it, but it's it's the appreciation for number one, the responsibility that you've been given, but more importantly, the opportunity that this country gives to everyone who wants to seize it and the obligation that we have to make sure that opportunity is extended to the next generation.
2: Well, wow. if I can editorialize for a second. As a longtime staffer in Congress, it used to drive me crazy, still does, when I hear people sort of at at writ large say, oh, members of Congress, politicians, you know, they're all they compare them, they compare them to the most vile order of human being out there, which first of all, in this day and age is extremely dangerous. But second of all, is so at odds with my experience. And I hope that people who've been watching this on video and listening on pod or on radio have gotten a flavor for this in listening to Senator Heitkamp, because it really is amazing your command of the issues and the politics and what it means to represent people where you come from. And also think about the interests of America and the way your story embodies the best of what this country is about. I have to say that that was basically the norm And what I encountered working for several members of Congress, encountering and working with lots more. And I don't just mean Democrats. I truly don't. Now, there's certainly a faction nowadays of the other party that I I don't think quite as highly of. But I do mean it that that it was very much across the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. And for the most part, I found them to be dedicated, hardworking and really, really care about this country. And, And that meant a lot to me.
1: Yeah, no, I I think way too often, in part because we keep telling you how mean everybody is. We keep telling you that they don't care about. It. That's our political dialogue now to get elected. And then we're all supposed to do the kumbaya when we we come together. And it's really hard after people have spent how many months calling each other out to to bring them back together. But there's a great expression that I any any time that I considered legislation, Native American culture for Indigenous people, which is a lot of folks and and good friends in the Dakotas and especially North Dakota, they say every decision that we make should be done for the benefit of seven generations. What will that decision mean for the seventh generation? And if we start analyzing this not in political cycles. What does it mean if I vote this way? And partly I, I ran for governor and lost, right? People say, well, weren't you worried when you voted against Kavanaugh? I said, you know what? It's not the end of the world. You aren't going to take away my firstborn. I mean, you know, in this country, you, you aren't gonna you aren't gonna put me in prison for saying something different than the leader, at least not yet. And and so the 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 real obligation is for people to step out of their out of their kind of comfort zone and think about these decisions on what does this mean. Think about the people who were brave enough to pass Medicare in the 60s or social security in the 30s and the generation after generation of Americans today who have security, economic security that they wouldn't otherwise have because of the foresight Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Harry Truman, and eventually Kennedy that led the way for Medicare and Medicaid. And so those are just two great examples. I I would not be where I am without the student loan program. Now, I didn't have to run up a lot of debt, and we need reforms within higher education to prevent that from happening. But honestly, when people say, I said, do you think I came from, I told you, very modest modest background. Why did I get where I am? Because the government invested in me, invested in human beings, and gave me the opportunity to get an education. How not that a great investment for the United States? But equally important, doesn't that advance the long-term interests of of our human capital and our human beings and, and our democracy that we want to be a shining example for the rest of the world? Amen amen to
2: that. And we're not going to top that between me and Paul. So I guess we should wrap up. Well, (laughs) Senator, thank you so much for being with us, for offering some insight on technology, innovation, your time in the Senate, prospects for hopefully making some progress moving forward. And we just really appreciate you being with us.
1: Well, listen, thanks, you guys. And good luck. And Jeannie's in there fighting for you. And so is Maggie. So it'll all work out, I think.
0: Thanks so much.
1: You bet. Take care.